Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. As much as science as you can handle, I think. Maybe even more science than you can handle. We'll see. Actually, uh, I shouldn't overpromise. Um, I'm checking my story, and part of the point of my story is light on the science. So, uh, look, maybe I'll backtrack a little bit there and introduce Stu, who always has lots of science for us. How are you, Stu? I'm pretty good, and look, I, I can't understate how much science I have in my story. Um, I am I'm talking about the groundbreaking work that's gone into the Nobel Prize for Chemistry this year, which is, you know, oh, brilliant. I, I don't want to, I don't want to step on any physicist's toes, but you know, in the world of chemistry, I think the, the chemistry prize is right up there in, in uh, you know, groundbreaking science. To be honest, um, so the chemistry prize this year went to three people all for the same kind of thing and it's for a thing called click chemistry which i don't know if you've ever heard of that chris um but it it kind of i I don't want to bandy about the word revolutionize too much but it kind of seems that it might revolutionize chemistry to some extent at least can you can you have a can you have a modicum of revolution can you just have a little bit of revolution (laughs) Or does it have to be um, a complete revolution every time? I don't know. I don't know. I think history teaches us to get various sizes of revolutions, and where they stick is the question. Well, you know, this this is a revolution of a size. We'll leave it to history, I guess, to decide how big that revolution is going to be. But it is really interesting. I'm going to going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means and why they were awarded this prize. Great. Well, look. Um... You know, the the physics prize did kind of change our perception of the nature of reality. So if this one is bigger than that, um, I look forward to hearing about it. Well, me, I am um, picking up, following up on a story that I think we've covered multiple times. Um, We've talked about COVID-19 and its origins. I believe that Stu recently did a story he covered the the new papers that were published showing evidence that it originated in the um huanan wet market in wuhan yeah uh there has been uh in the last couple of weeks um a bit of new reporting sensationalized reporting around the idea that it actually came from a lab leak uh, this was based on a interim Senate report from the U.S. Senate. Uh, it was reported on in Vanity Fair and ProPublica. Um, now, I have previously talked about the lab leak idea and kind of called it a conspiracy theory. So I was when I saw this, I thought, oh, am I going to have to eat my words? And, um, well, actually, I was a little excited that maybe um, there would be some evidence that it would be wrong, that there would be some actual genuine evidence for, for this, and it's not just a conspiracy theory, but it turns out that it is pretty much still a conspiracy theory as far as I'm concerned. Um, that may sound very dismissive to some people. Um, I know there are a lot of people out there who kind of hold fast to this notion, but I'll explain, I think, in the story why I consider it, it is still a conspiracy theory um, until proper evidence emerges. 
So, um, not afraid to tackle the controversial topics here on Lost in Science, chemistry and conspiracies. Um, but uh, look, maybe one and both are the same. Anyway, on with the show. Okay, yes, you listen to Lost in Science. That's what I said in the introduction there. I am talking about uh, the new reporting on the idea that COVID-19 may have come as a leak from the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology Laboratory in Wuhan, China. Now, this was based on an interim report from the US Senate, which is conducting an investigation into this notion. Um, this was a minority report by the Republican members, which um, we might come back to because there are political kind of connotations for this whole thing. And it was reported on in uh, Vanity Fair, uh, which is a magazine you may, you may have heard of, and ProPublica, which is a website that is a non-profit online news source. Um, and this whole thing was built around some documents that were found on the website of the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself, and these documents supposedly reveal a safety incident in November 2019 that was so serious it gained the attention of no less than Xi Jinping himself. Now, these documents were translated by a person by the name of Toy Reid. Now, Toy Reid is a translator who has worked in kind of international policy. Um, Chinese is about his fourth language, but he claims to be an expert on party speak, which is kind of the, the I suppose, the, um, the terminology used by the Chinese Communist Party, and which he claims is difficult to decipher even for native Mandarin speakers. Which basically has raised the ire of a number of native Mandarin speakers who think, I think, you know, who claim to be able to understand Mandarin just as well as this guy. So, so hang on, we've got a, we've got a non-Chinese speaker who's got Chinese as an additional language, who's mm-hmm. commenting on a report from the US Republican Party, which was published in Vanity Fair. I'm I'm struggling to see the science in this story already. Well, that's that's a good point, Stu. Now, um, look here. Of being lost in science, we are we do look for science. We are biased towards the science content of stories, um, and yeah, this is entirely where you know it was worthwhile reporting on their papers that that uh, gave evidence for the wet market, which were a detailed analysis published in the journal Science, I believe, themselves. Um, Whereas, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about here is based on, like I said, translated documents that are not actually, uh, like, they're, they're just scientific issues, but it's talking about the politics is what is the focus on, on this story, I suppose. So, in terms of the scientific evidence we do have for COVID's origins, um, the the evidence is based on, primarily on locations of the early cases that are known, and in the case of the wet market, there's testing of samples from the the market. So, um, if you basically, this is the best evidence we've got. If you're going to say that it's something other, then it's some other hypothesis. You essentially do have to start going into the realm of conspiracy theory because you have to produce plain there is evidence outside what is known, or that somebody is covering it up. Um, now. I haven't seen anyone who was a fan of this latest um, lab leak kind of speculation 
um, suggesting that the scientists who commented on it are lying about what they found. Um, they seem to be leading towards the scientists either having made a mistake or the data have been manipulated by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, they have claimed, to try to make some claims that I guess the behaviour of this particular virus was different to previous zoonotic transfers, that's transfers from other animals. Um, but the papers that were published in science, in the journal Science, make it very clear, I guess, the mechanisms and how this is similar to, um, um, to previous epidemics we've had. Other so-called critics of the science have addressed things like um, you know, no animals were found to have had the virus. Um, but, you know, this was investigated quite a while afterwards. There were no animals that were present at the time in um, November, December 2019 that were tested because there were none around. Um, the, the market was actually closed pretty quick smart in January 2020. So, yeah, there isn't a lot of scientific content here. There is some um, vaguely scientific criticism um, about the speed at which the, um, the Chinese developed a vaccine. So they state in, this, in these articles that the, there was a military virologist, Zhu Yusen, who was the first person to apply to patent a vaccine on the 24th of February 2022, 2020. Sorry. Um, and they said this was way too quick and shows that Zhu must have had advanced knowledge of the genome, presumably by being the virus being known from the laboratory. Um, now, various people have different opinions on the speed at which that was done. Um, others have pointed out that, in fact, the first patent was applied for in the United States on the 11th of February 2020, um, so actually before Zhu Yusen. And, in fact, the, the virus genome was released um, to the scientific community in January uh, 2020, and I believe Moderna went on to develop um, a widely known vaccine. Uh, it took them about two days to design their vaccine as a basis of the genome. So these things did move very quickly. And and you know, I think one thing people do seem to forget with with the COVID, uh, you know, the the speed with which things happened is that scientists were working on a coronavirus vaccine, sort of a generalized coronavirus vaccine for a couple of decades before this even happened. So, you know, the idea that they actually, all they really needed was that genetic information that they could effectively slot into the into the vaccine they'd already developed. Um, so I think, you know, the people saying, oh, they, they, it was, how could they do it so quickly? It's like, well, because they've been working on it for 20 years and that was the useful piece of information they needed to make it, to, to tailor it to the new virus, basically. Yes. Um, and look, I suppose there's some of the things that people have picked on, I guess what I'm trying to say was too fast, was saying how you know, when you're developing a new vaccine, there'd be a lot of animal testing and things before you could get to that patent stage. But as you think, things move very fast in a pandemic. So yeah, there isn't a lot of valid scientific content for this, um, this latest lab leak, um, speculation as I'm calling it. Um, so let's return back to these translated documents. Um, the one that I think has been pointed to as the biggest kind of smoking gun says, um, I'm just going to quote as much as is reasonable here. I'm talking about the viruses, the chance of a virus getting out of the lab and saying that these viruses come without a shadow and leave without a trace. Um, although various preventative and protective measures, it is nevertheless necessary for lab personnel to operate very cautiously to avoid operational errors that give rise to dangers. 
Every time this has happened, the members of the Zhengdian Lab Party Branch have always run to the front line and they have taken real action to mobilize and motivate other research personnel. So this is a document that I suppose was found dated um, November the 12th, um, 2019. And as I said, it's been interpreted to say that there was a serious safety incident in that month and that there was a high level response to it. But others have, of course, taken issue with his interpretation, saying that the tense has been gotten wrong of some of these these words in there. There's not necessarily referring to there was a specific incident or that generally, it's just generally trying to say the party members do good things. Also, others have found that the document was in fact um, written in August, not November. So predates any um, supposed incident that may have occurred in November 2019. Look, I don't know. I am not myself a Mandarin speaker, uh, native or otherwise. So all I'm saying is that there is not kind of a single convincing translation and interpretation of these documents and significant evidence to show that, in fact, um, it may be mistaken. But look, as I said, this is this is very little content here. Um, and this is kind of where I come back to saying it is essentially a conspiracy theory. Look, I consider that the lab leak is still a you know a plausible hypothesis for COVID's origins, but until there is evidence, actual evidence for it, the evidence that is presented is along the lines of people claiming people are covering something up, and it's the lack of data is put forward as evidence that someone is in fact covering up. And to me, that is the nature of a conspiracy theory, which is not to say that again that's not completely implausible. Um, and I do think it's important to trace the origins of something like this because we do need to try and prevent further pandemics. If it is from a lab, then obviously we need to do things to improve safety. Some of the things that have been criticised in this latest reporting is documents on the website that talked about the safety measures that the laboratory in question was doing. That was produced as evidence that they're being in trouble. But essentially it is showing, in fact, that they were doing what they could to make it as safe as possible. And I think criticising those efforts is not way not a good way to go about improving safety. Um, it's been likened to basically calling someone an arsonist because they've organised a fire drill. You know, <laughs> you're doing safety measures does not mean that you have you are uh, being unsafe. Well, I mean, you know, that it's, it's an interesting thing that, you know, the, from, from the statement that you read before, it is so vague and, and non-specific. Mm-hmm. This is a lab that researches viruses and, and pathogens it's not surprising that there's internal correspondence about safety procedures for viruses and pathogens. It's what they literally do exactly. in that lab. It's really not. It's really not any kind of smoking gun. It seems like yeah. you know the kind of boring email I would usually ignore on a Monday morning myself. Yeah, I guess. Look, the um, the biggest thing that people pointed to as evidence is the very existence of this lab in the same city where um, COVID nineteen emerged, and yet that is kind of a notable coincidence. But that itself is not evidence. That is just, um, you know, quite sim- quite easily a coincidence. And that's where you start having conspiracy theories because there is no connection observed between the lab and the outbreak. And so you have to start introducing these conspiracies to explain the connection. Now, if it is, in fact, um, on the other hand, a spillover from animals... Um, then we have to do, obviously, measures to prevent that. Now, we know these spillovers occur. They occur a lot. Um, there was the original SARS, for instance. Um, there are constantly bird flu transfers from birds to humans. Um, more recently, you may remember we had Japanese encephalitis. 
And of course, the famous monkeypox or MPX, as I believe it is being rebranded. So, you know, these are ongoing concerns. Yes, there have been lab leaks in the past before, but there are many more animal spillovers. Um, and quite likely there'll be more COVID animal spillovers because now it is spread to other mammals as well. So it is something that we need to keep an eye on and perhaps concentrate on if that is the real cause of it. As to the reason for all of this, um, as I said, it was re released by the Republican members of the Senate report. I don't know, it's, it's suspicious that with um, their midterm elections um, on the horizon that they would release a report. Um, it's hard to know exactly how this benefits them politically. Uh, perhaps it galvanises a conspiratorial base. But, um, and if that's why it hasn't got as much coverage, say, in other countries, like you may have not heard this report much in Australia, because it is not politically relevant to us. But in the meantime, it's got a lot of people excited, but um, there is no actual scientific evidence involved and just a lot of um, highly questionable translations. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. When people think of chemistry, they probably think of the classic laboratory setup with the bubbling flasks and beakers overflowing with foggy vapours and various coloured liquids being mixed together. And they also probably think of comical explosions with sooty-faced scientists shouting Eureka at finding some fabulous new compound they've been striving to create. But chemistry doesn't really work like that. I think that's kind of a sort of, it's, it's a mishmash of, of mythology and, and filmmaking and, and stories of alchemists and things like that all, all wrapped up together. I don't know, Sue. I have seen chemistry laboratories and there is a lot of glassware. Oh, look, there absolutely is. Um, but, you know, in most, most experiments... Chemists know what to expect. They know what's going to happen. A lot of chemistry is more like sort of general industrial processes to produce a specific thing at the end. So, you know, you get ingredients or raw materials and you combine them to produce a known chemical product at the end. Um, but also in, in many chemical reactions, there is often more than one product at the end of the reaction. So you do get, you know... Uh, um, foggy vapors coming and bubbling things, and you know all sorts of <clears throat> byproducts of these chemical reactions. And yes, there is a lot of glassware as well. But this is because a lot of chemical reactions are you know state dependent or, or, or environment dependent. So you need increased pressure, or you need increased heat, or you need some special condition to create the chemical reaction. Um, so, so okay, we're saying that yes, yes, there is glassware. Yes, there are foggy vapors. There are also lab coats. There are also protective equipment. Um, you're not dispelling this myth here. Okay, yeah. okay. But look, if you want to look at chemistry as being dangerous, I think the Nobel Prize for Chemistry this year went to three researchers who have all made contributions to a new kind of chemistry, which reduces the amount of comedy explosions, um, but also the amount of byproducts in chemical reactions. So they're, they're actually, you know, getting rid of these, 
these vapors and and the the safety issues that I've just been talking about. So the, the first the first person who got uh, got a Nobel Prize for Chemistry this year has already got a Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Um, it's a guy called Barry Sharpless. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in two thousand and one for related but different work in molecular chemistry, and he is the person who coined the term click chemistry in 1998. So the idea of click chemistry is that certain molecules can be clicked together like like Lego, basically, which would have been a great name for it, except they'd probably get copyright issues calling it Lego chemistry. But click chemistry, a bit of alliteration, never hurt anyone. Um, the idea is that you can click molecules together under low energy conditions. So like I said, with the chemistry, you've got, you know, you can have temperature and pressure changes to accelerate the the chemical reactions you're trying to produce. The click chemistry is the idea that you can, using some sort of catalyst, just do these chemical reactions under, you know, room temperature conditions where you don't have to um, heat things up or put them under immense pressure or, or cool them down or anything like that. So as I said, many many chemical reactions are heat dependent and they only bind together at certain critical temperatures. And the idea is that you can possibly introduce extra components to these reactions that will produce the same reaction but at, you know, what we'd call mild conditions. So this is really important in biochemistry. So biochemistry is the chemistry of living things. If you want to look at biochemical reactions, you have to have them in what we'd call mild conditions. And I'm doing little inverted commas here because that is the conditions that things live in. Things, you know, living things survive in mild conditions. They can't be too hot. They can't be too cold. All the chemical reactions within a living body or a living plant or a living fungus or whatever it might be take place at a relatively narrow range of temperature conditions, for example, and pressure and all those things. So the idea of click chemistry is to find chemical reactions that can happen in those uh, in those conditions or, in fact, to uh, accelerate chemical reactions to happen in those conditions by introducing you know, other components. So this is where the second winner comes in. Now, he won the, the Nobel Prize for kind of the same thing that Barry Sharpless won the Nobel Prize for. They, they pretty much produced the same chemical reaction at the same time without consulting with each other. So they um, did produce a really good example of a click chemistry reaction uh, they introduced um, copper to a reaction between two organic chemicals. One's called an azide, one's called an alkyne. They are just organic molecules. They're very common organic molecules. They do combine in chemical reactions under high temperatures. But both Morton Meldal and Barry Sharpless, at around about the same time, got them to combine at, you know, basically at room temperature. Um, using copper as a sort of a connector between the two uh, between the two molecules, so they introduced a third um, element, which then combined the two molecules. 
So is that just a catalyst then? Is that what we call it? Or is this something different? A catalyst doesn't take part in the, in the chemical reaction. It just accelerates it. In this case, the, the copper actually forms part of the new molecule. So it's binding the two oh, things okay. together. It's kind of like glue that sticks together the two molecules. Um, why people haven't figured this out before, maybe we didn't have the technology to actually analyse chemistry at this level until fairly recently. But this stuff has been going on for about uh, around about 20 years that they've been able to do this kind of thing. So it's it's not brand new stuff, but it is, it's still pretty amazing. So the third joint winner of the prize was another American... Um, biochemist, um, Carolyn Bertozzi, who coined the term bioorthogonal chemistry. And the literal translation of bioorthogonal chemistry is chemistry at right angles to life. Now, what that means is that she is pioneering chemical reactions which can, which can take place inside living organisms and inside living cells without disrupting their natural metabolic processes, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. You're making chemical reactions happen that doesn't interfere with all of the other countless chemical reactions happening inside a living cell. So that's pretty groundbreaking stuff there. Um, This is a specialized area, uh, this um, uh, or bio-orthogonal chemistry, uh, a specialised area of click chemistry, um, which can already be used for diagnostic and research purposes uh, on living cells. So she's actually managed to achieve this. So she's managed to get chemical reactions to occur within the range of temperature for the organisms to continue functioning normally and also not produce any chemical byproducts that could otherwise disrupt the normal functioning of the cell. So it's pretty amazing that she's been able to do this. Um, And it also opens up a whole new area of biology research, of actually being able to sort of conduct experiments inside cells and and get things, changing things inside a cell without destroying the cell, which is quite an amazing sort of uh, advance. So there's, there's potential, obviously, for using this kind of, um, click chemistry in medical treatment applications. If you can create new molecules inside living cells, you might be able to target and neutralize toxic or pathogenic chemicals in living bodies and, and, and get rid of them or, 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 you know, have them be disposed of or whatever it might be. But look, I think, you know, as I said in the, in the intro, I think the, uh, for anyone who's interested in chemistry, this is a pretty revolutionary process that these three people have been working on. And I think we'll probably see more products of this click chemistry and more applications of this click chemistry as more people, you know, take up the, uh, the, the concept, um, potentially can change the way chemical processes are carried out in research, but also in industrial applications. So if you think about how many chemical processes require energy inputs or temperature increases and that sort of thing, the, the potential reduction in energy consumption to produce the same chemicals that we're already doing is, is a potentially huge environment, uh, environmental impact as well um, from, this kind of, uh, from this kind of chemical paradigm, I suppose. Um, 
but it'll also make it easier to find new molecules by actually experimenting and and putting things together that wouldn't necessarily be found together. How they do it now is basically look for something in nature and then synthesize it in the lab if if it's doing something they want to do. With this kind of click chemistry, they can they can combine different molecules together without having to find them in nature. They may be able to just join things together and say, yes, that works, it does what we want it to do. So it's a pretty big step forward in chemistry. Um, and so, look, it is it is uh, an exciting uh, Nobel Prize. I think um, we can we can look forward to some more advances in chemistry, um, and unfortunately, still probably fewer comedy explosions. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'm not surprised that Barry Sharpless gave it a simple name. He's he's very blunt. <laughs> very good. He's Sharpless. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now. We're at the same time every week when we all get Lost, lost in Science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.